Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast. Today we're talking to Hayley Perkins, who is a counsellor and psychotherapist, about the issues surrounding teenage depression. This was originally broadcast as a live Facebook event and can still be found on the Parent Guide to GCSE Facebook page. Evening all. Good evening. So this is the last in our series across the week of Children's Mental Health Week. And this evening we are talking about depression and we have Hayley here with us. So Hayley, hi. Hello. Thank uh, could you do a quick, oh, talking over you already. Uh, could you do a quick who you are and why you're awesome for us, please? Yeah, my name's Hayley. Um, I have been a counsellor now, God, it feels like forever, um, 16, 17 years. And it's probably been in the last four or five years where I've actually started working more with young adults and teenagers. Um, became a therapist really after my own time. If you speak to many therapists, most of them have become therapists because of their own experiences. Um, I have gone on, to, I'm, I'm also a part trained uh, psychotherapist. Um, I haven't quite finished my studies there yet, but I trained in something called transactional analysis, which is all about the messages we get as children and how that influences us growing up. So, you know, supporting parents especially in these times is so important and um yeah hopefully i can give a bit of a different spin on depression tonight um and i think what i just want to point out before we sort of get into the nuts and bolts anything i say tonight is really important that but that it's not taken in a way like I'm blaming or or shaming parents in any way. But it's a, it is important to explore those experiences that the children have had growing up because it's not always about here and now stuff. It can be some from stuff that's happened from birth. And I'll share some of my own experiences in my life because it helps to just consolidate and help people to understand how children can take on board some of these messages. Yeah, sounds fab. Yes. Um, so, well, can I kick off? Yeah, just go for um, it. So, depression is something that I really associate with adults, not necessarily with children. Can you just put me straight on on that? You know, it, it is something that you, that can start from teenage years or or, or younger. I think the thing about depression, if you think about the word itself, it's it indicates like depression. It's the pushing down of. And you absolutely you're right. You know, we do associate it with being something that we experience in adulthood. And most commonly, you know, it probably is. However, you know, it can happen at any any time of our lives, especially if children have experienced traumatic events like separation of parents or, you know, other traumas that have gone on. But just exploring a little bit about what depression is and what leads to us having depression. Um, you know, when I look at my own life, you know, when you start to explore just the families that we're born into, you know, just the ranking, the order at which we're born into can influence it. Depression for me is about not being able to express ourselves. And so, you know, when you start to look at society nowadays, and I think we are more open about mental health. But I think there's a lot of pressure that we put on children. So when we start to compare childhood now to what it was like 20 or 30 years ago, I think there's a lot more pressure on children, which may bear a relevance as to why we're seeing more depression in children. Also, we're more aware of it. I think it's always been there. I just think we haven't. It's very easy for it to be discounted in children. Oh, pull yourself together. Um you know, don't be stupid. These are the kinds of messages I got as a child growing up. So I think we're much more attuned to our children nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the kind of things, obviously, it's a very wide spectrum. 
but the kind of things that might bring on an episode of depression what's what are the sort of range of trigger experiences i guess that we'd be looking at i think you know the obvious ones are like the big traumas that children may have experienced separations of parents death of grandparents death of parents so you know even to a degree what's going on at the moment is quite a big trauma for children something that like rocks their world fairly quickly but for most of us or for most for most people that experience depression it's it's a, like a drip feed of things that have happened over over the years. And I just want to kind of give you a few examples there of like how the child's psyche starts to form. And it starts from day one of birth. You know, I was I was born in 1971. OK, so I was born at a time where it was very much, you know, mums were told to not go to their children when they're crying. You know, so my mum would put me at the bottom of the garden in my pram and she wouldn't come to me. So when you start to think about how the, the the brain and the psyche starts to develop in a child at a very young age, you know, if if you're experiencing for whatever reason, and as I say, this isn't about pointing fingers or blaming anyone, it is just what it is. You know, my mum was 17 when she had us, you know, so she was a child herself. So she's going to be influenced by what she's being told. So I know for me, I learned from a very young age not to express how I was feeling because there was no point because no one came so when you start to track back and you start to look at children and their environment that they're born into you know they become toddlers and they're noisy and you know parents have busy lives and so they don't always have the time to be as attentive and so it's this that starts to lead the child into not expressing themselves and if you think about feelings we 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 process them in three main ways. We either express them, which is lovely. We get it all out. We're allowed to cry. We're allowed to have tantrums. You know, so we learn that it's okay and it's safe to express ourselves. Most of us, sadly, don't have that experience. And we learn from a very young age to repress, to actually stuff down those feelings. Even, you know, my mum used to have an eyebrow raise. And I knew if that eyebrow was raised, you know, to to not push it, to not say, say anything. And then as I got older, certainly, like going into my teens my mum and dad would say to me you can tell me anything and when I did tell them things I'd often be punished or I would be very judged by what I was telling them so it's kind of this is the kind of stuff that leads to depression where we don't have a a safe environment and when I say safe environment I don't mean like physically safe I just mean a place where we can express ourselves without fear of judgment or being told off you know it's that kind of repression of our feelings from a very early age that then can lead to depression it doesn't in all children you know some children it doesn't have that influence but in others it does you know and we often talk about depression being hereditary and I I do think there is a nature and nurture thing going on there. I do think there can be um, a hereditary thing with depression, but I think it's about environment. You know, if you're born into a a family where mum's maybe got depression or nan's got depression, that's what the child experiences. You know yourself, if you're around people that are negative, it drains your energy, doesn't it? You know, so if you're around that persistently, we model and we, we grow up we know we we model and we mimic the people that are around us so um yes did that answer your question (laughs) yeah I think so I mean I'm kind of going from my own experience I uh I think I had pretty chilled out and fairly supportive parents in terms of having an emotional safe space as a child 
my depression stemmed from a couple of bad bosses in a row, one particularly, um, where nothing I did was good enough. And no matter what I tried, it made no difference. And it was just that constant being put down and just, I couldn't do anything about it because this was my boss. I couldn't get out of that. And that constant ongoing <laughs> lack of control, I think probably, was what then eventually turned into this uh, period of depression and went back to then another bad boss and I could feel it starting to happen again. I could feel the feelings coming back or rather I could feel the feelings <clears throat> going away because that's what happens. I describe depression as, you know, when you go to the dentist and they inject your, your gums and then your whole face goes numb and you kind of, you're poking, nothing's happening, you can't feel it. You know it should hurt, you can't feel anything. Well, it's like anesthetic for your soul. I couldn't feel any of my emotions. I knew what I was supposed to feel. I knew what I was supposed to be doing up here in the little bit of my brain that was still working properly, but I couldn't actually make that happen. My feeling system just shut down. And that was uh, that was, was not super fun, I gotta say. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that was purely that kind of, I decided when I felt that happening again, that I wasn't gonna let myself be in that situation. So I decided that my sanity was more important than my salary, which is a line I use quite often now, and uh, quit, hence now starting my own business instead. But it was, um, I think, one of the things I wanted to make sure we got across this evening is the the ways that parents can support their child. Because I know my, my ex-husband had a, an episode of depression and I had no clue what was going on and I didn't understand. I didn't get it. Why can't you get out of bed? You've already phoned into work. You don't have to go in if it's work that's making you miserable, but you can get up, come on. But no, that's not how it works. And I didn't get that. And I was not the supportive wife that I should have been at the time. I was very lucky in that when I had an episode of depression, I don't know whether I was able to express myself a little better or whether you're just really awesome. But he was, he was really awesome. just didn't, didn't expect anything from me. I could just mm -hmm. be without having to put on the pretend emotions and pretend to be okay and pretend to be normal because I wasn't. And I needed that mm. space where I could just be and that made a big difference. So making sure that parents understand and aren't trying to constantly fix their kids because you know, if they had an infection and you were giving them antibiotics, it'd gradually make them better, but you couldn't talk them into getting better suddenly. You have to wait for it all to kind of gradually resolve itself. So and yeah difficult because when you see whether it's a child or a friend or a partner when you see them in that place you know that that low low place of course you want to fix them but it's it there's two sides to that there is one the desire for that person to be better you know you want that person that used to be vibrant you want that child that used to laugh and sing and dance you you long for that person to, to come back <laughs> but also what happens is your own stuff is being triggered you know living with someone with, with depression whether that's a young adult or an adult or a partner or a parent is very very difficult and it it in it in it invites lots of different emotions in us the guilt the, the sense of not enoughness those overwhelming feelings of just feeling lost and out of control so in a way you've almost got 
these two situations going on. So you've got the depression that's being presented by the 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 child, the, the teenager, or the the adult, but you've also got what that's bringing up for you, and that then influences how you are in your day-to-day -day life in your homes and quite often what we do when we're kind of at a loss and we don't know what to do we drift we stop talking we stop communicating we go through these cycles of of being the nurturing parent and really trying to support and fix the child to then maybe being the angry parent you know we go through all of these emotions depending on what kind of day we're having you know and that is completely normal and completely fine but what happens over time when we when we don't feel like we're making any inroads is we just kind of we lose energy we lose motivation we just drift apart and of course what then happens that reinforces the the depression because you're right what you're talking about is like when you're in that place i i lived with a friend for a year when and she was in a really really dark dark depression and to start with you know i'd be coming up with all these great ideas for her to do and later a few years down the line when she'd come through it we were able to talk about it and she talked about the how much pressure she felt you know how guilty she felt because she wanted to please me but she couldn't you know, and I didn't have that frame of reference. I'd never experienced that. And it was only through being able to talk to her and her share that with me that I started to understand. There's actually, I don't know if you've read, there's a book by Matt Hay called Reasons to Stay Alive. It's that, you know, I'll put that on as a reference. He, he, he talks about his experience with depression and it's funny and it's, it's beautiful. It's such a lovely book because it really helped me to understand the perspective of somebody who's depressed and the guilt they, they feel and what they're doing to their parents or to their partners you know and that just kind of drives them more inward hmm. yeah when it kind of resonates with me because i you know I, I was there watching emily going through it um but at the same time i think you you knew what was happening and therefore you 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 know, you're a reader you read up on it you read up on everything and what can you do but it didn't stop her just wanting to spend all day in bed having gone from you know active vibrant five million brainy ideas a second to total shutdown mm -hmm. but at the same time i think i always had that reassurance that you were trying to work through it and also i think the communication was always there wasn't it yeah, I think so. I did. I, I like to read up on things so I can fix them. That's what I do. I research stuff. So um, I, I did the whole how do you, you know, early signs of depression symptoms. What can you do? You know, you should go for a walk. You should do all the things. And then I couldn't couldn't make myself do them. Yeah. But, um, we it wasn't a counselling kind of a situation. I know lots of cases in depression that is quite helpful. It depends on the trigger. For me, that wasn't something that felt like it was going to work. And I tried all the the stuff that suggested the healthy eating and the going for walks as far in as far as I could. I still had to take um, our daughter to school and back, which is a five minute walk each way, um, which I did manage to drag myself out and do. But it was dragging myself, yeah. literally dragging myself. And um, and we got to the stage where it was antidepressants. That was it. And I fought it for so long because there's still this stigma about being on antidepressants and needing to fix yourself in that way and yeah. not being able to think my way out of it, which is something that I've always done mm -hmm. and I couldn't do that. And it's um, it, it took a while to acknowledge that. And it's stupid because you know, if you've got a headache, you'll take an aspirin. Mm -hmm. If you have an infection, you'll take antibiotics. 
if you can get out of it without having to do that stuff and rely on drugs, awesome. But there's no reason not to use them if that is what it takes to then fix you. Absolutely. And that's what it took to fix me. I was rubbish on them to start with because there were a lot of side effects. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a few weeks of just being thoroughly miserable and then switching to some different ones to see if it was better. And I went through a few weeks where I couldn't move from the sofa pretty much. I'd be literally sat on the sofa feeling like, and it's, as you said, with the depression, like someone was just pushing me down into the sofa and the remote would be within arm's reach. I just move your hand an inch or so and I could get the remote and I could change the channel from, I don't know, whatever terrible program was on or, or the fact that the TV had gone blank. Nah, couldn't even make myself move my hand. I'd just sit and stare at the blank screen because I couldn't do anything else. And it was terrifying because there was still that little bit in the back of my brain going, well, this is not normal. Just pick it up, just do it. <laughs> kind of yelling at me, made no difference. And then I started to get better because the drugs started to kick in. And and it, I don't know, it was like, I don't know whether any of the parents out there read The Day It Rained in Colour when you were kids as a book, but it, everything's gray, everyone's used to gray. And then one day it rains in colour and suddenly the world is a very, very different place. And it was like those little drips of color were starting to come back in. And that was when I could communicate a little bit better with you. I think about, you know, where I was at rather than just, you know, grunting, which I think was what you got for a few weeks, bless you. You know, it's also being able to establish the difference between like low mood and anxiety and clinical depression you know, when we're talking about the chemical changes in the brain, that actually, you know, the thing about all oh, there's some wonderful like techniques that you can employ, like mindfulness, meditation, going out for walks, playing with dogs, all of this lovely stuff. But you know what, when you're you've got to be in that mindset place to be able to do those things. And often what you're you know pe that's things that people will suggest to do and it is just it's another thing that is almost like we like we carry this rucksack of ideas and fixes that weigh us down even more and it's like that visual representation of a rucksack I think is lovely because that it's 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 like that invites guilt as well because the more we come up with all these ideas and we go online and we read things that are going to help us but we can't do it oh there must be some there really is something wrong with me so we start reinforcing the beliefs that we've got about ourselves it's really interesting because when I'm working with clients I get them to imagine imagine they're like a Russian doll you know the little dolls that go inside each other and we have all these aspects of our personality and the part of you that likes knowledge and reading and you know all of that stuff consciously makes sense to do certain things Things. but these other parts of us like these the we I call it the inner and outer child the inner child is like our emotions and the outer child is the saboteur the part that kind of says nope we're not doing that so we have all of these different parts of our personality tugging and pulling and trying to get airtime and you know it doesn't matter how many books you read how much logic we apply when your fearful inner child is like going nope this is where I'm staying today you know when you start to that's why when you're when I'm working with parents that are worried about their teenagers 
I get them to imagine what what they remember being a kid because we forget don't we we grow up we become adults and we forget that we were all once children you know and I know in my when I was growing up especially when I was a teenager I kind of felt like I was the worst kid on the in in the world because I got told off for everything there was rules for everything you know and it was just now when I think about it I think oh my god you know I, I couldn't do anything without my mum you know my mum was an interesting character very critical she you know now as an adult, I can look back and I totally understand her and I can understand what I experienced growing up. But actually, as a kid, I just felt controlled and it was horrid. And I, I sometimes think, you know, as parents, we're so busy being parents that sometimes if we can actually spend a bit of time connecting with our own child it, within us, it really helps us to tap into what would we need? What did we need as that 13-year-old, that 14-year-old? And that can really help us to understand how to work with our own teenagers and our own children. Yeah. Uh, so if as a parent, because I know we've had some of our, our members and some of our community get in touch and, and some people have mentioned that their child is currently depressed and, you know, and they're struggling to understand. We've kind of talked through that stuff. So if a parent said to you, I know my child is suffering from depression, but I don't know how to help them. Yeah. What would be the, the little chunk of advice you'd give them? So are we talking that they've been to the doctors, they've had some kind of, okay, yeah. yeah. They, they've they've that's always the first port of call you know to try to get them to go and see somebody you know which is really hard to do you know I, I'm working with a couple of parents at the moment and you know they're just there's just no way that they could get the child to go and see a counsellor but actually there's a lot of support out there where you've got like sort of youth workers that will come in and they will uh, I know um the one lady I'm working with, she's got a teenage son and he's got a guy that comes and plays football with him. He's in his early 20s. He's quite cool. You know, finding somebody, not sometimes the parents aren't always the right people to to for the child to open up to. And I think something that we do as parents as well is we try to assume what's wrong. So we get into, this is part of the fixing mode, isn't it? Where we 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 kind of list off lots and lots of things that it might be and i i don't know again put yourself in that position if someone was doing that to you how you would like just close down and and not want to to open up so i think there's just things like um also looking at yourself and sometimes we have expectations of our children and you know are we are we being are we practicing what we preach in terms of you know do we take proper care of ourselves so when we're trying to get our children to take better care of themselves you know are we modeling that for them so I think it isn't just about how you're supporting the child it is about what you who you are as a role model and how if you look at ways in which you can improve the way you're living your life, that's what's going to then be modelled for the for the child, for the teenager. <laughs> yes, indeed. And um, I should say at this point, if you are watching on the live, um, this obviously doesn't doesn't count if you're on the podcast later. But if you're on the live and you've got questions, do feel free to pop them in. And um, that is what we're here for this week. So um, give us a shout if you uh, if you want to ask anything. Um, okay, so. Is there anything 
the because you're the expert in this i i can't claim i'm an expert that would be like saying i went to the zoo once and now i'm a koala bear so <laughs> what haven't we talked about yet no how useful I guess you know it's, it's understanding. You know what? I, I, a couple of years back, I did um, I did a, a four day training just on depression, and it was really interesting. I, firstly, I, I um, it was with this guy, Dr. Mark Widdicombe, and he'd done his PhD in depression. It was really fascinating because he'd obviously spent many years um, researching and working with people with depression, and he talked about the patterns that we repeat throughout our day that keep us stuck in those depressive states so this is quite a nice thing to start looking at i mean obviously we're so limited at the moment aren't we in terms of you know we are so stuck at home and so those really rigid routines that we we get up at a certain time we do whatever we do so there's a it, it's hard at the moment to look to make small changes to our routines but that's what his whole phd was around and around how we keep ourselves in this this state by the way we actually the routines we have in our lives so there's maybe some some work that can be done in that area where you can look at your own routines look at the teenagers routine environment plays a big part in depression you know it's you know when you start to look at what leads to depression yes you've got all the childhood stuff but you've got food plays a big part what we're eating you know without even starting to touch on social media you know that is a massive one you know children or teenagers are going to social media for attention to get their needs met to to get those likes to feel important you know so social media without a doubt you know the biggest thing that's changed in the last 20 years you know your question earlier about mental health and you know why we're seeing so much more in younger children you know social media plays a massive part um but you know last year i worked with a a, a young lady she was 15 and she she when i would ask her a question she would take time she'd really deliberate and think about what she was going to say and one of the things she had with her mum her mum couldn't give her that time so when because she would take time to think and not answer straight away her mum would get really cross with her you know this is just parenting stuff isn't it so she kind of like had this dynamic going on so just think you know that's a really important one to to firstly like not think that you know not think you know what's going on but to actually when you ask questions to actually give them time to answer because they may not know the answer straight away but to give them that time and space to actually have um, time to think and to answer because you know my mum was the same you know if she asked me a question I felt the pressure to have to give her an answer straight away and then I'd maybe say the wrong thing and then I'd get told off for that and it's just these dynamics that go on um, but that was really interesting because I did also have a session with her mum because her mum wanted to know exactly this stuff how to support her um, and we kind of talked a little bit about that and her mum's life was busy you know she had a full-time job so her life ran at 100 miles an hour and that reflected in how she parented her daughter mm. yeah yeah slowing down enough is is a challenge I think I know it's something that we face in our house. I think that's one of the themes across all the uh, things we've done this week mm -hmm. is parents just being encouraged to to listen really, really carefully, not yeah. put words into their mouth, not answer for them, not guess what it might be. And I mean, you were saying earlier on about the parents listing all the things it could be. That's in a way that's pointing out to the child 
all the other things that could be wrong that they may not even thought of. Yeah, let's not suggest new no. stuff to them. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's difficult. Um, you know, we're we're running a business, we're we're still working full time, although we're working from home. And sometimes our daughter just I mean, she's twelve, she just wants to come and babble about Harry Potter for an, half an hour, just very happily, all these fun theories and things. And my brain's kind of going I have so much work to do. And then Paul's like, but I have to go and cook tea. And you want to just fast forward her because that's that's how I run. I am very much totally. fast forward all of the time. And I really struggle sometimes to to slow down for long enough to just let her be and talk and you know be there for what she needs from me. I yeah. It's absolutely a thing. The way I see that is it's about being present in the room. You might Mm. be in the room, but you're not. You're busy typing. You're busy thinking. And and I think we're all guilty of that. I know I certainly am. Sometimes she'll be talking or the boys, they'll be talking. And I'm just, I know that actually I'm listening, but I'm not really. And that's, you know, that's not not great parenting. And that's a bit about, you know, checking in on yourself you know it's really interesting because we want the best for our children you know but we don't always model that in ourselves more of my personality as an adult is like how my mum is not but not how she wanted me to be I've grown up to be the person as much as I hate to say it that kind of puts the dinner on the table that does all the housework that was my mum my mum worked full-time but she also did everything in the house and as much as my logic conscious brain hates that and wants to rebel against it that's who I've become because that's what was modeled for me you know it, it absolutely is but you know it's really interesting because this isn't just about helping to to support a child through depression you know this is about bringing families together generally the more we can slow down in our lives and be more present in all relationships so it's not just with our children it's with our partners it's with our friends you know life is so busy now you know we can be busy 24 7 it's almost like i do believe being busy has become that like a the new i'm fine years ago you'd say to people are you okay yeah yeah i'm fine now it's all i'm so busy we've kind of it's like a badge of honor isn't it and we're teaching our children to fall into these traps as well so we're kind of like just by how opportunity is wonderful social media has brought so many opportunities you know I run part of my business online as well you know and it's fabulous to be able to do that but it does also mean that our boundaries are not as tight as they could be and I think if we don't have tight boundaries you know that kind of gets filtered down to 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 our children yeah um right we have a question that's coming mandy Uh, she says can anxiety be confused and end up being treated as depression um i think if you go and see a professional they should be they, they should take you through a there's specific documents that they have that they take you through that should determine i i think we I think we talk about depression and anxiety as if they're the same. They're not. They're two completely separate things. People can have both. Yeah. So um, it can easily be confused. But I think if you're speaking to a professional, they should be able to see to, to see the difference. Yeah. I, I know that not early on, but when I was starting to get come out of the depression, that's when the anxiety happened for me. And it was just it was going out in public and it was linked to the fact that I'd been signed off work. And, and I put so much pressure on myself because I knew I was letting my team down and I was letting my students down because I was teaching and being seen out in public, even if I'd just gone out to buy some milk, 
felt like, well, if you can go and do that, then why aren't you back at work? And that, I think, was what triggered the feelings of of panic. So I couldn't do crowded spaces for a while yeah. um, or just out in general for a while. Um, but they did feel very different. I can see how they're, how they're linked. But, yeah, I think if you're talking to a professional and you're capable of explaining what is going on in your brain and your body, I think it's something that, yeah, they should be able to switch between listen to me talking like I know stuff absolutely right and I, I have periods of anxiety and it's based upon when I'm future faking when I'm looking into the future and predicting what's going to happen so I'm like whipping up a, a really horrid story in my head and I I can't breathe and I it's I call it the dreads and I it's a, it, it's it's like um, it's energetic feeling inside anxiety, whereas depression is like the smothering down of. So when you start to physically describe depression, it's it's dark and it's almost still uh, for most people. So there, it, it, whereas anxiety is almost like there's an energy in us that we kind of it, that makes us feel on edge. Hmm. As a teacher, that's uh, basically when Ofsted come into your room or it's an Ofsted yeah. visit, yes. yeah. you know you're going to be observed and it's that. It's the adrenaline just, feeling. Well, and yeah. the night before you go through the 840,000 <laughs> different scenarios that could happen. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, there's no right or wrong answer. And I, I never got to the bottom of how to stop it happening. It's just a constant. But I know it was nothing to do with depression. It was just a, a lead up to a big event. And then straight afterwards, you know, um, all was good. All of this is like the brain's coping mechanisms, you know, and that's completely normal. You know, when you're going into like you have to face Ofsted or you're going to do a talk in front of loads of people, it's completely normal for the brain to like be, you know, firing off some signals that are going or, you know, danger, danger. But, you know, they settle down. Whereas, you know, when we <clears throat> people that are overthinking, that are creating stories, they're living in this permanent like fight or flight responses. And that is what leads to depression a lot of the time. So people that have had anxiety for long periods of time can become depressed. And equally, like you experienced your depression, you had the depression first. And then when you started to reconnect with the world, that was when your anxiety and it's the brain sort of like going, putting some stops on, alerting you to the fact, oh, there might be danger out there. You know, and that's when when you kind of anxiety, you know, that is like when things like breath work and meditation is really helpful because it's like about settling down the nervous system. So techniques like meditation and mindfulness and, and breath work are really helpful for anxiety, as well as starting to understand, like, why do we overthink in the way that we do? Again, overthinking is a protective mechanism. It's something we learn to do uh, often in early childhood. You know, when I used to sit on the stairs listening to my mum and dad arguing, so I only ever got part of the story, and then my little brain would create the rest of the story about what was going on, and, and then I'd go to bed and be all worries about it and get up and cry to my mum and say I've dreamt of dinosaurs because I needed that you know that hug and that reassurance but I never could tell her that I'd been earwigging on them and listening to their argument about money or whatever it was so my little brain was creating filling in all those blanks and that's what we do so when you start to look at how we get to a point where a 15 or a 16 year old is experiencing depression the chances are if you could like if you could map that process of their life where you know how they have been through their lives you know that's without anything like bullying and stuff like that at school 
you know there's so many things and and it's it's the child's own psyche as well i remember when i started my psychotherapy studies the tutor said to me she told a story about a woman who had had twins and she said um she used to say to the twins you're both going to end up in the nut house and they both did one as a doctor and one as an inmate and that kind of defines you know you can have two children how they can be so different because of how their own their own psyche is so there's so many things that influence that can get a child to to that point but i think the key things for parents is to really look at how you can make some improvements in your own life and how that will then sort of filter down modeling modeling the masters it's kind of like it is is important but also yeah that whole thing about not trying to fix them is so important yeah and it's a tough one because it is goes against every instinct in your parenting body Uh, not yeah and i guess the other thing and then this is what this came up when i was working with this this um girl last year and she was suicidal and she was self-harming and it, it it was it was it had got to a really serious point and she went to a private school and there was a lot of pressure on her to still be at school and still get in her education and sometimes you have to pick what's important and it's like if your child is is at that point where they are not functioning where they are seriously in a very deep depression you know that becomes the main focus you know everything else kind of goes out the window and it's hard to do that because we value iq above eq you know we put our education and that far as being far more important than you know our emotions and it's only when something like that happens that we think god you know we need to give this some real focus but it's hard because that involves time and if both parents are working it's like how do we find that time to do that yeah definitely um right last chance for questions probably if anyone else has anything else that they'd like to ask and um, otherwise i'm trying to think what we haven't covered that i was thinking we ought to talk about but i think we've done everything we've talked through just a little bit of what it actually feels like when you are depressed and the the kind of mental process that you go through so that we can help parents to understand what it is their child's going through we've talked about how parents can then support their children through that kind of stuff. Oh, we do have a question. Vicky, Vicky says, how can you help an anxious child not to worry so much? This is my 11 year old boy. He'll worry about most things as he anticipates he won't be good enough or something must go wrong. Yes, and I'm sure that you do all the reassurance and the telling him all the, um, so, maybe get him a little book or something i find journaling is one of the best things for anxiety especially with overthinking you know again it's like it's encouraging him to use it it's hard to get teenagers and and kids to do things but maybe get him even get him to choose the book so it becomes like his worry book where he can actually start writing stuff down in his book so getting it out of his head and onto paper um the thing about you know children especially with anxiety you're not in a logic place so even if you sit down and you talk logically and you give that child evidence it's not it may not they may not hear it so giving them a a space and also it's open communication isn't it i mean it's great that she's you know she's she's coming on is it sorry i don't know vicky yeah that you're coming on and you're you're 
sharing that and he's obviously talking to you about it but maybe create I don't know there was a worry monster last year I saw come out on the market and I thought that was brilliant where children could write down their worries and put it in the, the worry monster's mouth that was for like younger children and the journaling is kind of a similar thing you know what we're trying do is we're trying to give children a way they can express themselves so this you know we we either repress we either get aggressive these are the three ways repression aggression or expression so finding ways to give the child a safe space to be able to express what they're worrying about and they may not always be able to come to you and talk to you so giving them a a, a book um i don't know I, um i don't know if there's any uh, good children's books that maybe tackle anxiety sort of giving them getting them some books to read themselves good shout thank you very much and then we have another one which is an excellent question Kay says how do you differentiate between normal <laughs> teenage behavior and a mental illness yeah do you know i think I, I i think it's great that we've really raised the awareness of mental health but i do also think it can make us look at every change in behavior and start to worry so i do think we need to be careful of i think the difference is if it's prolonged you know it's of course teenagers go through a guy was a right stroppy humpy teenager um but i also you know if they start to lose interest in the things that they love doing you know if they if you notice any changes to their eating patterns if they're losing weight or gaining weights you've got the really obvious stuff like if they're having suicidal thoughts or self-harming you know and they're that's very obvious but it's the really subtle stuff as well so look for changes in their behavior and if it's prolonged if they are in a low mood for long periods of time that's maybe time to just kind of be a bit more aware of that i think it's kind of you know your child and you know what is normal but of course there is that tolerance of them getting older um and again it's going back to those patterns of opening up communication with them but not not trying to second guess what's going on for them it's open questions are really lovely so asking questions that are more open you know and asking them regularly if they're okay i know that can feel like a bit of a pain really but just taking the time to check in with them but i think that it is a tough it is a tough one to know what is just them growing and asserting themselves and hormonal changes and all of that and actually it being something more more serious but i do also think we kind of we're so scared of missing something that it maybe makes us more susceptible to worrying about stuff yeah mm. indeed um right that's it with the questions i think and i i can't think of anything else that i need to ask you about this is there anything you think we've missed i think that just that i'm just i did write some notes down because sometimes my 50 year old brain just goes completely shut down so there's just one sort of thing on here at the last point was about helping your teenager to feel safe and you know that's really important and you know safety comes in different forms it's not just physical safety or you know it's emotional safety as well so you know creating environments where they can feel really safe to talk about stuff and sometimes that's not the parent so you know there's so many brilliant resources online you know and i, I my, i've got a, a teenage nephew and he's he's really struggled with social anxiety he won't go out and he's living such a small life um, but we compare what he could be doing. And I think sometimes we get so lost in the what they were and who they could be that we actually 
stop focusing on the actual here and now and what we're dealing with today. And I think sometimes if we can just take each day at the time at a time and not flip into the future and worry about the impact in a year's time or two years time. So actually just working with creating a safer environment as possible and also finding some really good resources that they can go to but you know you can't make them you know you can only kind of encourage them and give them give them the the, the resources to to go to and I you know I, I I trust they will and trust they will Thank you. Yeah, it's one of the things we, we've said a few times this week is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And uh, yeah, just being there is the best we can probably do and the most supportive thing we can do. Thank you. Um, right, that was amazingly helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah. Oh, and yes. So Jason's added. I also think parents make situations and, and label their children when they're actually just missing friends and family. And particularly at the moment, I think that's. Yeah that's an issue we're all a little Big bit issue. up and down yeah. let's face it with lockdown it's all a bit Meh. Um, depressing <laughs> is then the wrong word to use in this context because it's not the same thing but it is just it's a challenge at the moment and that's that's normal because we're all dealing with that so yeah I, and we do love a label Oh, we do love a label. Variety of labels because they make us. It kind of defines us and it makes us feel safe if we've got a label. But equally, it's like it's, you know, it's infuriating when you're a child and you're trying to. Uh, there's so many things in our lives that stop us showing up as who we really are. You know, not, it just, just, you know, it just is. You know, I can remember like not being able to wear what I wanted to wear because my mum wanted me to wear other stuff. You know, it's just these little ways that we we start to mould and become what other people want us to be. And then we go to school and we have to wear a uniform and it's just life. You know, this is where nature and nurture start to collide a little bit in that we, we don't, we, we, we stop letting children be children in terms of noise and mess and picking their nose and sticking their tongue out. And we kind of, we have to like, we put these rules on them, don't we? And then they get rules at school and like, this is where we start to get pushed down and this is how depression starts to happen. And then they they don't know how to express themselves. So they start to do it in online or in ways that, you know, are maybe unhealthy rather than healthy expression. Yes, definitely. Um, now, if people kind of wanted to find out more or, um, yeah. or something like that, could you maybe ping us over some links that people could use to either get in touch with you or get more resources and things? And then we can put them in the, the comments and in the show notes, because that would yeah. be amazing. Um, and a massive, massive thank, thank you for you giving up your Friday evening for yeah. us. Thank you for inviting me on. Have a fabulous yeah. weekend. Very thank much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.